Hello, and welcome back to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. Last week, we took a new turn on our journey, exploring the workings of the mind to finally get into grips with the mind and to understand why we work the way we work, why we do the things we do, and why we think and feel the way we do. Because these are questions that we have always wondered, trying to find answers to, wondered and wandered, both. We have spent a lot of time trying to understand the world around us. As I explained to you last week, advancements in science and technology and various other disciplines have taken us to new frontiers of human capability, as well as new paradigms of knowledge. So we as a human race, actually we do know and understand a lot about our environment, about the world we live in, about what goes on around us. Thanks to medical science, biology, chemistry, we also understand what goes on in our bodies, its composition, how we move, how our bodies regulate itself. We understand that the body is made up of numerous systems, systems that are responsible for keeping these bodies alive. We also understand how we produce new offspring. So there's a lot that we understand about our environment and about our bodies. However, there's one aspect of our existence we, for all our advancement and our development has remained in the dark. We don't understand very much about how our mind works. We understand very little about it. As a result, we don't know how to deal with the problems that come to us in our day-to-day -day lives. Although we boast about our advancements and how technologically developed we are, how skilled we are, and how today we can reach for the stars and the planets, and there is no ground that is outside our reach. In the face of problems, challenges, 
in the face of some of the most simple of obstacles, we fail miserably. Just taking a look outside will give you enough evidence of this. Actually, just looking at your families, some of the problems that you have to encounter, the disharmony among people, greed, hatred, ego, jealousy, distrust. These are some of the things that we know go on inside of our minds, but very few people know what to do about it. And because they don't know what to do about it, they resort sometimes to various medical procedures, treatments, sometimes taking time out, going on holiday, watching TV, picking up a hobby, relaxing, in the hope that these things that people do, without really any assurance that it's going to make any difference, will somehow make a difference. But we know that the amount of stress keeps rising. More people are finding themselves in the lurch of mental anxiety, stress, and various other psychological disorders because they don't understand how the mind works. Do you remember being taught at school why you like the things you like? Or why you think the way you do? Or how your mind works? This seems to be left for a very small crowd of people. Very few people even question about it. It appears the study of the mind is a very esoteric discipline. Not to be understood by many people, but unfortunately we all have to live with one, don't we? Such a shame. It's not like you have the choice. Even if you lose your arms, your legs, and have the remainder of your body amputated, you still have a mind and you have to put up with it. To your last moment, even when everyone has left you, your loved ones, friends and family, and you have lost everything you have accumulated in your life, the last thing you're going to have to put up with is how you feel about yourself. Therefore, when regret, anger, sharp, acute pain, mental trauma come up and haunt you, people are left helpless. 
Everyone's born with a mind, but not everyone gets taught how to live with one. It's such a shame. The moment someone is born, from there on, parents, teachers, elders, and society has a way of teaching a child how to use its arms, its legs, its nose, body, and every part of it. But how little time do we invest in teaching our youth, people in society, human beings, how to use their mind? So, we must understand that this little explored, little understood thing that is the mind is ironically the one thing that we should probably put all the time in the world to learn, to understand. That is the hope of these talks. That is what we hope to achieve and to share with you. The wisdom contained within the teachings of the elders who themselves learnt it from the great teacher, the great master who dedicated his entire life, not just his last life, but many millions if not billions of lifetimes on his journey through sansara as a bodhisattva, trying to understand one thing, how does the mind work? Why do I do the things I do? Why do I feel the way I feel? How do I understand myself? So, we are ever so grateful that today we have access to this knowledge, to this Dharma. And today, my hope is to share a little bit more of that with you. Because through this understanding of how we work the way we do, of how the mind works, we'll all be able to understand ourselves better and in doing so, be able to live better, more rewarding, more fulfilling lives and ultimately achieve happiness because it is mental happiness that we are all after. We know so well how to achieve physical happiness, don't we? When you are hungry, you don't need to go get a degree to understand what to do. When you need to take a nature course, you don't need a PhD to understand what you need to do. When you have a backache or a stomachache, it takes little time or effort to figure out what to do. But what happens when you have a heartache? What happens when you have a mind ache? When you feel like you're alone in this world? When you feel like someone has broken your trust? When you feel that someone has betrayed you? And that sharp pain that you feel cooking up on the inside and you know that it's going to be a storm in a bit and it's going to completely wreck you from the inside. How do you face that situation? 
People understand so little about it. In fact, the reason most people go and commit suicide is because they understand very little about the mind. So, with reverence and veneration to the great master who has saved us from this misery, through his infinite compassion, infinite mercy, let us take a moment to pay homage to the Lord Buddha. And as soon as we've done so, let's continue our discussion on how the mind works. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Right. Let's switch across to the whiteboard so I can continue where we left off last week. Now hopefully you remember what you see on the board here. If all this looks new or unfamiliar, then that's because you missed last week's talk. So I suggest that you pay that a visit before you continue to listen to this particular episode. However, I will give you a quick whistle-stop tour on what we talked about before we continue with today's discussion. I started off talking about what we know about ourselves. We know that our physiology constitutes a brain, which is part of the nervous system. And we, of course, have the five sense organs. So you have the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. These five sense organs, or what we refer to as the five sense doors, doors because it's through which these sense, sense impressions or these sensual stimuli enter our system. What are they? Not a flower, but sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. So these stimuli enter our system through the five sense doors. And thanks to our nervous system, these stimuli are conveyed to the brain, which is what most people believe is like the central processing unit. And the brain then passes that message on to the mind. So this is what we talked about last week. And I use the example of a flower. You have light. This is exactly in accordance with what we understand how physics works. Light that is reflected on an object or light that falls on an object is reflected onto the eye 
and the eye then through the optic nerve conducts this electrical signal or this impulse to the brain and the brain has a magical mysterious way of passing that on to the mind as an impression. So one of the things that I emphasized as we talked through this discussion last, last time was that it's not the actual object that of course reaches the mind but it's an impression of it. So that impression when it reaches the mind the mind needs to then do something with that. So this is the input into the mind and, the, and now the mind has a function, a role to play. At this point I'll remind you something that I briefly mentioned about last week because it's pretty important that, I, that we all are clear on this and that is, you know, while this might seem like a, an academic exploration into the working of the mind and our inner self, it's really only a demonstration to help us understand how we work. So all of this is ultimately to achieve one thing and one thing alone. And let's not forget that that is happiness. All of this is for this. So at the end of understanding all of this, if you have still not achieved happiness, then this has simply been a waste of time. That is why there will be some parts that I will skip. Some bits of information that I will choose to quickly skim through and there will be others that I will focus in a little bit more detail because all of this is for one goal and one aim and that is happiness. So, having laid down that disclaimer, let's continue. So the mind has now a function to play as soon as this impression has been received and I say receive because that is one of the principal objectives of the mind. Let me move this out of the way for a second. So, one of the first things and one of the most important things that the mind has to do is to receive. Receive what? The sensory impression. This is the job of the mind, at least part of it. Yes, receiving happens at the eye. The retina does that. Yes, I don't deny. So does the brain. But now we are talking about how do you know that what you have seen is a flower? Now we need to find an answer to that question, don't we? Because the eye is not sensitive to a flower, does it? is it? The eye is sensitive to light. And the brain is also not sensitive to light. It's sensitive to an electrical signal. Nerves don't relay light. They relay electrical signals. But when it comes to the mind, the mind must receive an impression of the object that has been seen, if we are talking about the eye sense door, and 
sound if you're talking about the ear sense door, smell if you're talking about the nose sense door, and so on. Whichever way it is, it must receive. So that is one of the key functions of the mind. So if someone were to ask you, why, what, is, what, is, what are the things that the mind does? Because in understanding the mind, you, know, you need to understand what the mind does. Why does it exist? Why does it come into being? What's its purpose? And one of the reasons for its existence is to receive mental, sorry, or sense impressions from the brain. So what's the next thing it needs to do after it's received it? That is to register it. To register it. What does that mean? To register it is to record the fact that an impression has been received. So receiving is one, but registering is another. It's like if you were at a dockyard. Just imagine that for a second. Or say, for instance, you were at home expecting a parcel from your courier. They arrive at the door and they knock on the door, you walk up to it, you open the door and they hand over the parcel that you were expecting. Either expecting or not expecting. Either way, they hand you the parcel and what's the next thing they get you to do? They get you to sign for it. In other words, it is registered that the parcel has now been received. So this is also a function of the mind. Registering the fact that an impression has been received. And once it has registered, the next thing it is to do is just the same thing you do once you receive a parcel. What do you do? No, not return it. What do you do? You recognize it. So to recognize it, you might pick it up and read the label. Right? So you know who it's from. It may also give you an indication of what it is. Once you recognize it, say for instance you notice that it's delivered to the wrong address or that it's something that you placed an order for but you then decided to cancel it. And the cancellation policy indicates that they will accept your return provided you send it back just the way you found it. So, so these are distinct actions you can take with the parcel you have just received, right? For instance, if it has got a label on it that says fragile, one of the things you'll probably not do is shake it to see what it sounds like. One of the things you'll probably not do is drop it to see whether it's heavy. These are probably some of the things you won't do. Or place it somewhere where it might fall and break if it drops. So you see, how you recognize it has a large part to play with what you're going to do with it. So as soon as you recognize it, now you know what to do with it. Imagine it's a, it's a box, it's just a blank box, there's nothing on it. 
you signed for it, you just received a, an empty box, you're probably not going to do much with it if you're sensible enough. Well, who knows what's in it? Or let's say you receive it and it goes tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Chances are you're probably not going to find out what's in it. You'll probably give it back to the delivery driver and say, take it somewhere far away and don't come back. So you see, how you recognize it has a great deal to do with what you're going to do with it. So that tells us then what happens after we recognize it. What's the next thing that we need to do then? Work out what can be done with it, right? What can be done? What action can we take? With, with what? With what we have just received. So if you relate this back to how we operate, how we work. Let's say you, someone brings a slice of cheesecake or maybe a bar of chocolate or maybe a slice of something, something edible to you. You know that you can eat it. Sometimes you can be fooled. What if it's a bit of plastic, but in the shape of a slice of cheese? You could be fooled, you could be tricked, right? So you see, it matters not what it really is, does it? What matters is how you, that's right, how you recognize it. This is what I'm saying, well, this is what I mean when I say, how you recognize it has a great deal to play with what action you decide to take with it. So, once you recognize what it is, you will know at that point, rightly or wrongly, it may be that your recognition is correct, it may be that it's wrong, and it may be you're still wondering what it is. Because to recognize something, you need the help of something else. What is that? How do you recognize something? Actually, the word itself is a good indicator. The word itself tells us something that's really important when you recognize something because it's to do with cognition, but not just any old cognition, it's recognition. So, to recognize something you need to go back and refer to something, don't you? That's how you recognize something. In other words, that's how you recognize something. And this is where your memory is very important. You know you're looking at a flower because you know what a flower looks like. True or false? That's why you don't look at a flower and go, hey, there's an elephant there. Because you know what a flower looks like and you know what an elephant looks like. Therefore, when a sensual impression arrives at the mind and it is registered and it is rightly recognized, you know that a flower is to be plucked and an elephant is to be kept a good distance from. 
These are actions that are determined based on how you have recognized the object. You know that a microphone, such as this one here, is one that you can talk to because it records your voice, or at least it converts your sound to an electrical signal. Therefore, you can move closer to it, or you can move further away from it, if you want to sound louder. You know that an umbrella is something that will keep you dry in the rain, or it will give you shelter in the sun. See, you know these things, don't you? We've always known how to work with the world, but we've never known how it works. So it's a bit like that. You know, until you learn, for example, at school, how a light bulb works, well, you still made use of it. Remember as a child, you switched on, you put the, flicked the switch and it came on. You never stopped for a moment to understand how a light bulb works. And only later when you learned that Mr. Edison spent a great deal of time and so many iterations of trial and error to get this light bulb to you, did you learn to be grateful for the simple fact of flicking a switch and a bulb coming on? But until then, didn't stop you from making use of it. So you don't have to understand it to make use of it, but you need to understand it to fix it when it breaks. Ah, now you're beginning to see the bigger picture, aren't you? We've all got a mind and we can all use it, but when suffering happens and the mind is broken, you don't know how to fix it until you understand how it works. So now you begin to realize why I'm sharing this information with you. That's why I said this is, sim this is not just an academic study as to how the mind works, but rather this is all focused on one thing and one thing alone. The very reason we started this series of talks and the very reason we continue with it and the very reason that one day we will conclude this once we have covered that ground. This is all about the Buddha's guide to happiness. So, happiness is ours until suffering encroaches. We've talked about this in the past. Happiness is the default state, isn't it? Suffering is not the default state. Remember we talked about this? If you missed those talks, then I do strongly recommend you go back and spend some time just to refresh your memory or just to make sure that you're up to speed on that. Because it's important to understand this. Throughout this series of talks, I have built one talk on the previous. So if you follow this in the right sequence, on the sequence in which they were delivered, then you will have no trouble understanding these concepts that I share with you today. But if you might have missed one or two, then again I repeat, I do suggest you go back and revisit some of them. So, it's like a car. You don't need to understand how a car works. Well, at least, you don't need to understand what goes on under the bonnet. 
to drive a car, do you? When you go to driving school, they don't teach you all that. How the fan belt works, how the radiator works, how the engine works, how the carburetor works. They're not going to teach you how to fix it when it breaks. Because you can take your car to a mechanic, to a garage, where they'll know the inner workings of a car. So when it breaks, you take it to the garage and they fix it for you. The thing is with the mind, when it breaks, sometimes you're not in the mood to take it to someone who can fix it. Sometimes that feels like the last thing you want to do. And unlike a car that will break from time to time, would you be surprised if I told you that a mind does not have to break from time to time? You can fix it once and for all. Given that choice, would you not take it? So this is what this is all about. When you understand the workings of the mind, how the mind functions, what are its roles, what its purpose is, how it works, in the event it breaks, you can fix it quickly, yourself. So you can become a DIY mind mechanic about that. And if you learn and practice this really well, you can make your mind unbreakable, invincible. So this is what this is all about. Right? So... That's a bit of an advert for what we're doing here. But hopefully you understand why we are talking about what we're doing and what we're talking about here. Right, so let's get back to where we were. Receive, register, recognize, and actually, I like what's happening here. You have three R's. So I'm going to put another one here. Let's call this response. or respond. So, received, it's been registered, recognized, and once it's recognized, now we can respond to it. What we do with it is a response to it, isn't it? You know water is to drink. You know a chair is to sit on. You know, a plate is to eat. You know, a spoon, again, is to eat with. You know, a fan is to switch on, so you can feel the cool breeze. You know, a TV is to watch. You know, a light or a bulb is to give you, give you light. You know, slippers are to wear. You know, a house is to give you shelter. You know, a planet is to live on. See? The moment I say the word or the noun, the respective verb comes to your mind because you know what it is, because you recognize it. How about a blue bloop? What do you do with that? 
Sorry, what bantai? Yes, a blue blue. What do you do with that? Uh, beats me, I hear you say. Well, exactly, because you don't recognize it. Neither do I. So I don't know what to do with it either. If someone knows, then please do let me know. So although you have received it, what I just said out there, this rubbish nonsense, and it registered, you don't recognize it. Because you don't recognize it, I can't then ask you the question, what do you do with it if I were to give you one? In much the same way, you see something for the first time, you know, like how they do in science experiments and they give little babies new things, things they've never come across in their life. What is one of the first things they'll try to do with it? Yeah, exactly, that's it. What they've always learned to do with things that they have found. Because the first thing usually that a baby comes across is a mother's breast. So what do they do with it? They are taught to stick it in their mouth. As if by instinct they do that, and whether by instinct or not, that is a mother, that is what a mother would support the child to do. So in much the same way, whenever you present a little child with something new, they're going to do with it what they know to do with anything, and that is to stick it in their mouth. Until they learn later on in life that not everything is to be stuck in their mouth. So you see, response or how you respond is a function that has to follow recognition. Now, I believe you're all okay with that. So what comes next? What comes next is the ultimate goal of all of this. Right? It, it is of little use to receive, register, recognize and respond to something if the, the next thing that, ha that happens does not happen. In other words, you know, it, this is where you form a complete picture of what you have just received. So you see, when I say the word flower, it does not take you till tomorrow to perceive a flower. The moment I say flower, if it's something you've heard before, if it's something you've seen before, I mean, you know, if you've, if you've seen a flower before, obviously you've seen a flower before, you've seen lots of them, right? But the moment I say flower, a picture comes to mind, doesn't it? Even without me presenting a flower to you, because that is your recognition going on. You're dipping into your memory bank and pulling an impression of a flower that you've seen before. It might be what you saw today. It might be what your favorite flower that maybe you saw perhaps when you went to Kew Gardens. When you were 14 years of age. That was what, 10 years ago maybe. So, we don't need to understand at this point the specific mechanism behind which impression is drawn from memory. It's not important for our discussion for today. Perhaps it's something we'll talk about in the future but we just need to understand that this is what happens so the moment I say flower all these things happen before it takes before it before it takes you time to even say the word flower the moment I say flower before you even repeat the word all of this has already happened in your mind that's why if I were to say a swear word you wouldn't say it out loud because you know it's a bad word 
So it's not like you hear it, you say it, and then you kind of try and think about it, and you figure out, well, actually, that's not a good word, I shouldn't have said it. No, all of this happens so fast. That's why I said the mind works at such a rapid rate that I don't know of any processor that can ever match the processing capability of the mind. So these are the things that happen in your processor. If you were a computer, your mind is the processor. Although people believe that it's the brain, it's the mind in my humble opinion. So we have ultimately perception. Receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. The five functions of the mind. The mind will only exist with these five things, never half of them. So, if receiving is going to happen, or if receiving happens, then registering will always happen. Recognition will always happen. Response will always happen, and so will perception. You might have the question, what about Bhante, as you said earlier, something that we don't know, something I don't recognize? Well, you still recognize the fact that you don't recognize it, don't, haven't you? Like it's a box. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a box. It's just a, for the technical term, a black box. You don't know what's going on inside it. It's just a box. Or it's something you don't know. Let's say there was an object laid down a table. You had absolutely no idea what it was. You still say, it's something I don't know. But it's something. Right? So meaning, you recognize it. That's why you don't step on it. Because you've recognized it. You don't know what might happen if you were to step on it. But... You don't step on it. Why? Because you've recognized it. Perhaps you might not touch it, fearful of what might happen. You're probably not going to pick it up. You're probably going to keep your distance from it. All this because you recognize some aspect of it. You don't know what it's called, you don't know what it can do, but you do know that it's something that you don't know and therefore what could be the possible action or the response that follows? Of course, let's find out what it is. Right? That is also a response to that kind of recognition. So you see, whichever way you look at it, the purpose of the mind is all of this. Now you, need, now you understand why and how you go through these steps in the process. Because it's a function of the mind. And anyone who has a mind will go through this. A dead body won't because there's no mind that works in it. An animal does the same. But plants and trees, they don't. Because they don't have a mind. Biology will teach you that they're living things. Maybe. But they don't have a mind. Therefore, a tree will never receive, register, 
recognize, respond, or perceive. And the fifth, or this, this most important and crucial perception would not happen without the above four. That's why a tree does not perceive. A plant does not perceive. A rock does not perceive. Because there's no mind. So, what we can learn from that is, the reason that these things happen to you, or inside of you, within you, is because you have a mind, and it's the, per it's the objective, or the goal, or the, the function of the mind to be able to do these things. The very reason a mind comes into being, comes into existence, is for these functions to occur. And when it does, all of these five will take place. Not one or two, not one or two on Friday and the third one on a Monday, no. All five of them will always happen if a mind arises. And if a mind doesn't come into being, then none of these things will happen. Because it's only a mind that can do these things. Make sense? Excellent. Now, remember what we drew here last week? So, here we go. This was the time axis, and this was the energy axis. Because I wanted to emphasize the point that what I've drawn here is not the mind, because the mind does not look like this. You know, it's not like a bunch of hills, one after the other, with troughs and peaks. This is simply a representation of this energy that is the mind on the time axis. So, think of it as a glowing bulb or, or a glowing light or a bowl of light. Again, the mind is not a glowing bowl of light, but I'm saying I'm, I'm trying to explain to you using something that you already know. It's analogous to that. So it arises and passes away. So there's a period of high energy and there's a period of low energy. That is how the mind operates. And so this is a series, one after the other. Never two at the same time. So when I say mind here, I'm actually specifically referring to thought moments. So if you consider the mind to be the base, then these are thought moments which arise in the mind. So probably would not be reasonable to say that this is the mind that arises and passes away. But instead... If you consider that this, this whole thing, from past to present to future, these thought moments arising and passing away, they happen on the base that is the mind, but they are thought moments. Thought moments because the moment an object is perceived or is received at the mind door, so like you have the eye door, ear door, nose door, tongue door and body door, you also have the mind door. So at the moment a sensory impression 
arrives at the mind door, then a thought moment comes into being. Just like that, comes into action. To do what? Well, to do just the five things we talked about earlier and nothing else. These five things. What are they again? Receive, register, recognize, respond and perceive. In the Pali, there are terms that you may have come across that talk about these. So I'll write them down just for reference. This is called Rupa. This is called Vedana. Don't worry too much about what they are. You don't need to go and look them up either. This is simply for reference because I may from time to time refer to them as Rupa Vedana and so on. And you may have come across these terms in other texts. So, I just want you to know that we are talking about the same thing here. This is called Sanya. This is called Sankara. These are the terms that the Buddha used to describe them. And finally, Vinyana. So again, I repeat... Don't worry too much about how to pronounce them or if you get them wrong, oh my God, what's going to happen? Don't worry about that. I'm just sharing the Pali terms so you can refer to them if the need arises at some point in future. And in the event that I refer to them by their Pali names, by the off chance. But you understand these, don't you? With no trouble at all. Because I've gone through the process of how this happens. Receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. In fact, I'd like to offer just yet another analogy just to make sure that we are all on board with this. Imagine you're at home doing something, tending to some chore you have at home, and someone knocks on the door. The moment someone knocks on the door, let's say you weren't even expecting, the moment someone knocks on the door, you know that someone has knocked on the door. Right? So, a sense impression has now been received. So there's a knock on the door. It's just a knock. You don't know who it is. Well, not yet anyway. So once you hear the knock on the door, what you might do is walk up to the door and open it. When you open it, you register the fact that someone's at the door and that it wasn't, say, a twig that fell from a tree and rubbed against the door. Or it wasn't your cat. Or perhaps it, was, it wasn't the wind. That it was actually a, a real person that knocked on the door. So this is registering. Receiving was the knock, registering, opening the door, and, well, registering that there's someone at the door. Then comes recognition. Who is it that's at the door? Who's at the door? That's your recognition. So you identify whether it's a police officer, or is it a friend, perhaps you're someone from your family, maybe the postman. Maybe someone's come to me, read the meter. 
Or maybe it's a stranger. Perhaps it's a, a poor person, a beggar. Right? Now, is it not important how you recognize them? Do you treat all people who, you, who arrive at the door the same way? Like, do you treat the postman the way you might treat the policeman? Hopefully not. So how you recognize them then determines how you're going to respond, right? If it's the postman, you might go, ah, hello, what do you have for me today? You're probably not going to say that if it's a policeman. You're probably going to say, officer, what can I do for you? So you see, your response is different. And maybe it's a monk, in which case you might quickly go inside and maybe get a piece of white cloth and put it on the best chair you can find at home and invite the monk in. Perhaps, perhaps. Or maybe if you're not very fond of them, you might pretend that you're not at home. So you see, your response is determined by your recognition. And then finally, your perception. So it's the package, the entire thing, the, the right from start to end, all of this. Imagine, all, you know, you had a visitor and say they leave. Later in the day, someone comes up to you and asks, hey, did we have any visitors today? And you'll go, yes, well, guess what? Earlier on, I was doing the dishes and then I heard a knock on the door. I walked up to the, to the door, opened it and guess what? It was my friend, Jane. I was so pleased to see her. So I gave her a hug. I invited her in. I got her to sit down. I brought her a drink. We had a chat for a while. And then after that, she left. So you see, all of that, that's the package. The entire end-to-end, -end, what happened, what went on, how, what, you know, who it was. That whole thing is perception. How you perceived. So it's the entire package. In just the same way that you would relate it to someone, in order for the mind to be able to relate what has just been put in front of the eye, perception has to happen. And for perception to happen, this is why I said earlier, the above, the th all the other four things have to have happened previous to that. Right? So hopefully that analogy helps you a little bit better to understand what's really going on in the mind. And all this is important because you need to understand how your mind works. Why do we need to understand how the mind works? So we can use it? Not necessarily. You can, you've been using it just fine without my help all this time, all along. But why do we need to understand how the mind works? Two things. One, if it breaks, you can fix it. So I'm trying to help you become a DIY mind mechanic so then you don't have to actually come up to me when it breaks or to a psychiatrist when it breaks. You can fix it yourself. Secondly, when you understand how the mind works, it won't break. That's the beauty of it. There's no other thing in this world that's quite like that. The mind is the only entity that I know of. When you understand how it works, it won't break. How about that precise? Everything else, I mean, even the guy who works in the garage, even his car breaks from time to time. 
He may not remain broken for long because he knows exactly where to fix it and how to fix it. Right? And his garage is in his garage. So he can fix it up quite soon, but that's not going to stop it from breaking. Just because he knows how it works doesn't mean it's, go it's not going to break. But the beauty of the mind is, when you understand how it works, guess what, folks? It won't break. So for these two things, we understand how the mind works. Now, just coming back again here, remember what we talked about last week. No two thought objects or mental objects or mind moments, let's call it that, mind moments. No two mind moments appear or arise at the same time. There's only ever one of them at any given time. You'll see me drawing up like this, but remember this is, this is against the time graph. So at t equals 1, you only have one of these. At t equals 2, again, you only have one of these. At t equals 3, again, you only have one of these. It's only through a span of time you have lots of them. So if you've lived for so many years, then you could say, I've had so many mind moments arise and pass away. How many? Far too many to count. Far too many to count. Far too many to count, not in a lifetime, but you know, in a matter of a second, there's just far too many to count. You don't feel your mind rising and passing away, do you? Like, you don't feel that there are dead spots, do you? Or black spots. You don't feel like, oh, I perceive a second, and no, I think there was just a moment there where I didn't perceive anything. No, you've never had that. There's always been that. For as long as the five sense doors keep bringing stuff and laying it out on the table or at the mind door, then for as long as that keeps happening, thought moments will arise to receive them, to register them, to recognize them, to respond to them and to perceive them. And even if the five sense doors suddenly give up or go on strike, you'll still have the mind door which will dip into memory banks and keep pulling stuff from there. So it's pretty much a self-sufficient program. It just keep on running from the day you were switched on. It can go corrupt, but it'll never stop. Or the mind can corrupt, yes, of course. That's how people go insane. In fact, anger, sorrow, grief, you know, these are all moments of corruption in the mind. In other words, where the mind breaks. But does it stop? Oh no. There are ways in which it can stop, but let's not get there just yet. I want to leave the juicy bits for later. For those people who remain with us, our listeners who remain with us for a few more talks to come. But today I want to leave you with that. It might feel like we haven't covered a lot of ground, but if you've gotten this into your minds, if you'll pardon the pun, about the mind, that's a great deal in itself. We are in no rush, we are in no hurry. We just need to understand how it works. So, to quickly summarize, we revisited last week's discussion, talked about the five sense doors and how the brain functions as a central point where it receives the sensory inputs and then leaves a mental impression on the mind. 
And as soon as a mental impression is received at the mind, we talked about how a thought moment arises. To do what? To do five things. Not one of them, not two of them, three or four of them, all five of them. If it arises, then all five will happen. If it doesn't arise, then none will happen. It's one, it's, it's one or nothing. Or, sorry, it's all or nothing. So, receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. What I'd like for you to do is over the course of the next week, you know, when you're out and about at the workplace, or if you're at school, just at home watching TV or washing the dishes, anything, just about anything, when you just go about your day-to-day stuff, you know, just life, see if you can try and see these five things in operation. See if you can try and observe, watch your mind as it does these things. Now, if the mind works at such a rapid rate, you might ask Bhante, well, can I really slow it down that much so that I can actually see it step by step? The answer to that, the true, the true, the truthful answer to that is, no, you cannot. However, that doesn't stop you from thinking through this process. It's like electricity, that you can, once you learn how electricity works and how the current that comes from through your, to the mains to your home can, can light up all the light bulbs in your home, you know that you know, in the time that it takes you to think it through, how the, the current flows through the wires, you know, that current of electrons have probably traveled the entire distance of the of, of the wires and back to the power station, maybe many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kilometers away. But that doesn't stop you from thinking it through. So what I would like you to do, just for the fun of it and for to get some practice, to get the hang of it, going through your day-to-day experiences, you know, you don't have to do anything special for it, some, anything unusual for this, just go as you go through your life, you know, just day-to-day activities. See if you can analyze them through this new lens that I have given you. So up until now, you might have seen objects, and you'll, of course, you'll have seen objects, you'll have heard things, you'll have smelt things, you'll have felt things, and so on. My invitation to you is to, next time you smell something, next time you see or hear something, take a moment to see if you can analyze it through the process that I have just laid down for you. See if you can catch yourself receiving it, registering it, recognizing it, responding to it and perceiving it. That will give you some good practice to begin to understand the mind as it is. That will all be very useful and handy for our discussion from here on as we begin to explore further how actually things can go wrong with the mind. Because up until now, this is how the, how the mind works when it's fine and dandy. But when things go wrong, we need to understand how that happens. 
and therefore how we can fix it and more importantly how we can stop it from going wrong. The beauty of it is when you understand how it all works that in itself stops it from breaking. Incredible. All right. Before we conclude for today then, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired to our teachers, our noble friends, and anyone and everyone who will have supported us to get this far on our journey and those who continue to support us on our journey to achieving ultimate happiness. All right. So let us take a moment then. To transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting period, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Sripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the Noble Path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all the other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and may through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane, may through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, Fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. And may, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Let us also take a moment to transfer to the devas and brahmanas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhadasasana. Let us also transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all those who have been our families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us in every way, shape, or form they could. Let us also transfer merits to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives 
to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. And may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe. Rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer merits to, uh, to those who have lost their lives in the natural calamities, such as tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them, and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land, and may to the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an arahat unmahanse, an arahat terunimahanse, in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. I do encourage you to revisit the talk once or twice, if time permits, and particularly last week's as well, if you might have missed that. We'll continue this discussion next week. Until then, may the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.